Welcome to the Bluff First Podcast. Join us as we journey together through the book of 1 Peter in our current series entitled Living Hope. We pray that this message will encourage and enrich your life. For more information, please visit us on the web at bluffhurst.com. As you are uh, finding your seats this morning, turn in your journals or your Bibles or swipe on your phone to 1 Peter chapter 1. There's a story of a, of a guy that built houses. Do we have any carpenters in the house this morning? Uh, not very many. Okay, all right. <laughs> Tough crowd. Anyway, there's a guy uh, building houses, and he was an older man, and he was ready to be done. And so he told his boss, hey, I'm done. I'm not building any more houses. I'm finished. And he said, well, hey, I, listen, I know you're ready to retire. I know you're ready to hang it up, but like, could you just do me a big favor and build one last house. He's like, I don't want to build another house. It's a lot of work. He's like, just give me one last house. And so he's like, oh, fine. I'm ready to retire, but I'm going to build one last house. And so he builds the house and every chance he gets, he, he cuts corners to speed up the job. He uses cheaper materials. He, he subcontracts stuff out to people that are of low reputation. He just gets the house built as fast as he can. And there's lots of little problems that he kind of overlooked, but he's like, We'll let him deal with that later. I didn't want to build this house anyway. And then uh, you might see where this is going. The, the boss came to him with the keys to the house. And he said, man, you've been such a faithful employee and such a great builder all these years. I wanted you to build one more house because I wanted to give you a house. And the guy was like, oh. <laughs> and he thought to himself, if I would have known this was my house, I would have taken my time. I would have built things differently. I would have used better materials. I would have done a better job. This morning, as we uh, jump into 1 Peter, I am excited to preach uh, to you as Peter gives us uh, good materials to build our lives with, good foundational uh, doctrine to build our life upon. And I'm excited. I was excited at 9 o'clock. I'm still excited. I'm excited. I had coffee. Can you tell I'm excited? I'm excited. And if I'm not excited enough for you, Pastor Max is preaching next week, and so he will be, definitely be excited enough. But we're, um, we're in week three now already of this series that we've titled Living Hope. And uh, if by chance you've snuck in and I haven't met you yet, my name's TJ. I'm the lead pastor here. Thrilled to have you here at Bluff First. We were hoping you would come today, and we're so glad that you're here. If you're watching online, glad that you can worship with us in that way. Um, but we have been in this series in First Peter. How many of you have your journals? Wave them high. Let me see them if you got them. If you didn't grab one of those, we might have some left. If not, you can search First uh, Peter Scripture Journal on Amazon. They're like five, six bucks. They're really cool little ways to follow along in the series. Um, we spent week one kind of talking about this back to the future concept, right? That we are able to look at what Christ has done and look at his coming kingdom, the resurrection, the new heaven, new earth, and we're able to pull those resources into our present and it should affect our, our life now. We should be living hope. Jesus is our living hope, but we're living out hope. Last week, we kind of did a uh, about the author. If you were here, we talked about Peter. If we're going to read a letter from Peter, we want to learn about who Peter is. And uh, in, in summary, if any of you guys have ever been to like a junior high, middle school basketball game, Peter is the kid that shoots at the wrong goal and makes it, right? Like that's him. He's always getting things wrong, denying Jesus, arguing with Jesus, fighting people, and yet God used him in such a powerful way. He led the church. He wrote part of your Bible. He was martyred for his faith. 
And so I think if God can use Simon Peter, he can use you and me, there's hope for us. And so, uh, and of course, also, side note, he was simply brought to Jesus by his brother Andrew, which is such an encouragement and such a, gives me such hope and urgency to invite and bring people to Jesus. You never know what he might do. I know Andrew wasn't expecting Peter to do all that he did. He just wanted his brother to meet Jesus. And so uh, bring your brother, bring your sister, all right? First uh, Peter chapter 1, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. We're going to get all the way to verse 2. Okay, um, we're gonna read verse one first. First Peter chapter one, verse one. Peter, this is who the letter's from, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter wasn't always an apostle, but he became a disciple, and he became a believer, and he became an apostle. To those who are elect exiles, those are strange words to put together, of the dispersion in a bunch of places we can't pronounce except for Asia, right? Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, Peter to the elect exiles. Now, uh, you and I, this is just another part of our Bible, so we're not thinking a whole lot probably about the significance uh, of these letters, but it is a substantial, significant thing that the apostle Peter would write to these churches in this region. Why is that? Well, the, the truth is, um, save for maybe a few who happened to be uh, gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and maybe heard Peter's preaching, most of these believers in this area, which is modern-day uh, Turkey, uh, it's, a, it's a range of towns and cities that are about the size, a little smaller than California. So you can imagine, that's a lot of land, a lot of people. Okay, Peter writes a letter to these people that's going to be spread around, and it's not like an email or a group text or, or whatever. It is going to be a difficult thing to write this letter. There's no UPS. There's no Amazon. you got to find a way to find someone to physically take the letter. There's no copy machine, so we're going to have to find a way to either make copies or pass it from church to church. Like, this is, this is a laborsome uh, effort. I want you to imagine maybe, um, if you're like, oh, I don't get it, why this is a big deal. If you could imagine like we're here at Bluff First and we're sorting through an old filing cabinet in the attic and we dust off a letter and it's to Bluff First and it's encouraging Bluff First and then it's signed at the bottom, Billy Graham. Like that would be an awesome find, wouldn't it? It'd be a big deal. Some of y'all are young and you're like, who's Billy Graham? Google him. He's pretty cool. Um, Google him later though, right, if you don't mind. Um, right now, that would not be as fun. So, uh, if we know also, not only did he write a letter, but if there's a first Peter, there's a what? Second Peter. So apparently he thought it was important enough to write to these people a second time. They have some serious concerns, and so we're going to dive into that. Uh, last week and the week before, we looked at the overall theme, the author. Today, we're going to learn more about the audience, and we're going to learn about the audience and discover why first Peter and how it is so relevant to us today. You know, people think the Bible is um, old, and it is, but they think because it's old, it's outdated, that it doesn't have much to say about today. But I don't know if you guys know this or not, the struggles of humanity have not changed much. Human beings are largely the same, and God does not change at all, and so the scriptures, the Bible, is timeless and relevant and, and alive and speaking to us today. The original audience was a suffering audience. Some of you come in here this morning, life's going great. Some of you come in, you say, Pastor TJ, I 
am in a season of suffering. This is a difficult time for me. And these people were suffering. They were going through trials and troubles and temptations that could have exhausted them to the point of defeat, to the point of quitting. And what I think is interesting, we're going to look at some of their suffering. Um, soon after these letters are written, in like 64 to 68 AD or whatever, First and Second Peter, um, after that, things are going to get worse. You guys ever been going through something and it was really tough and then it changed and it got worse, right? And so the suffering they're going through is going to get worse because Nero is going to blame the Christians for burning Rome when more than likely he did it. And so the persecution that starts out as just hatred and dis discontentment and dislike for believers is going to actually turn violent and get pretty, um, pretty gruesome. But at the time that Peter writes to them, that's not the case exactly yet. There's probably isolated incidents. Um, but what they're experiencing at the time is painful and probably more relatable to us, honestly, in the American church. What they were suffering at the time was being outcast and rejected by their society, by their coworkers, by the community, by their own families because of their faith. And so I think for you and I, maybe if uh, violence doesn't hit the church in America, at the very least we can relate to, some of y'all are like, well, you know, when I kind of sort of went to church and I kind of sort of believed in Jesus, nobody minded, but when I started really trying to live for Jesus, all of a sudden a lot of my friends weren't too happy about that, right? And so there's this suffering um, that takes place. And these people, these new Christians, uh, their faith was tolerated as long as it was quiet, as long as it was private, as long as they didn't try to tell anybody else about Jesus, as long as they didn't try to call anything else sin, as long as they still participated in all the old traditions they always had. Basically, as long as they acted like everybody else and acted like them old sel their old selves, nobody cared. But the moment they lived out real Christianity, all of a sudden, this is problematic. And that's not a new struggle, is it? That's what we face in our world today. People that knew um, the old us didn't like the new us quite so much. And we see Peter's audience, if they didn't um, pay respect and bow down to Caesar or they didn't worship the nation's gods, uh, it was a big deal. And you might be like, man, why, who cares? You know, we live, everybody can do whatever they want. I want you to picture this. You see someone and they're burning an American flag. That's the type of response that people not bowing to the pagan gods would have gotten. They were seen as unpatriotic when they didn't join the parties and the festivals. And they're like, you know what? We're going to skip Mardi Gras this year. We're not going to show up. Now they're weirdos. They're Bible thumpers. They're Jesus freaks, right? When they decided, hey, you know what? Um, some of our workplaces, they do certain things that we don't jive with. We're not going to participate in some of this stuff. We think it's pagan. We think it's false worship. Their employers are like, oh, you guys are goody two-shoes, and they, they rejected them. Their family pressured them. Man, come on, you be a part of this. Do, do what we've always done. And as they begin to bow out of certain traditions and behaviors because they're living for King Jesus now, all of a sudden uh, their family's upset with them, and some of them are outcasts even by their own flesh and blood. So why does Peter take the time to write to these group of people that live far from him? Why does he write to them? Because their faith is at stake. Their danger is our danger, that if there's that much pressure from the outside on your faith, if you're not careful, if it's not built on a good foundation, if it's not built with good materials, it might fold, it might cave in on itself. And Peter doesn't want that to happen. If you think, well, that's, you know, is that really gonna happen to me? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, is one of my least favorite promises in all the Bible. It says all, everybody say all. 
all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everybody, okay? If you want to live for Jesus, it's going to happen. It may not happen as violently as it happened under Nero. Now, Nero eventually would see human beings used as torches. He would see Christians thrown in uh, the Colosseums with the gladiators or with lions just because of their faith, right? People murdered for being Christians, But while we may not get to anything that extreme, we may not get to that in our country, we ought to at least expect what Peter's audience was experiencing in this season, being left out, being criticized for faith. And so why does he write to them? Because their danger is the same as ours. We don't want to fold under that pressure. We too are tempted to respond to this criticism and this pressure in a few different ways. Sometimes we're tempted to just make our faith private, right? To just be quiet about it. We wanna continue to live by God's word, but we just don't wanna offend anybody. And so we're gonna let our lives do the talking and we're gonna keep a very low profile in our faith. We're not gonna evangelize, we're not gonna talk about Jesus, we're not gonna share Bible verses, we're, not gonna, we're, gonna, we're just gonna keep it private, keep it safe, right? Other times we're tempted, if the pressure is even greater, to compromise, right? To, to say, hey, you know what? I love Jesus. I love that God is love. I love some of that stuff, but there's certain things he says and uh, you know, certain things he, he believes and teaches and, and forbids that I don't really jive with. That doesn't really fit in 2021. And so we compromise our beliefs and our faith. That's another road that we can go. We can make it private. We can compromise. Sometimes we abandon our faith altogether. We go, if this is what God believes, if this is what the church does, I don't want to be a part of it. It makes you too unpopular. If the culture comes at you too hard, I'll deconstruct my faith and I will just leave it all together. And then, of course, uh, another temptation, and I think these people felt the same temptation at times, is to just create a subculture, Right? Like the pressure is so great on us, let's just move away, let's build like a Christian Disney world and we'll only have Christian music and Christian uh, chicken nuggets and Christian, you know, everything. Everything will just be Christian and we'll keep the world out and that's how we'll live for Jesus by not being around any lost people at all. Um, and I'm, I'm not against Christian schools or Christian education or Christian music or Christian chicken nuggets. I love all chicken nuggets, okay? But... We can't create a subculture. Peter doesn't want them to do any of this. Don't privatize your faith. Don't compromise your faith. Don't abandon your faith. And don't try to build a bubble. Let me help you build this faith. And if you're taking notes in your Bible or your journal or your your phone or whatever, I want you to make notes, circle, write them down, these two key words in verse 1 that go together very strangely. Elect exiles. I want you to make note of those words inspired words by the Holy Spirit, carefully chosen words by the Apostle Peter that describe the experience of what it is to be a Christian, not just 2,000 years ago, not just under Nero, not just scattered in what's now Turkey, but today in Poplar Bluff, what is it like to live for Jesus? It's like being an elect exile. Let's look at exile first. I love studying the Bible. Anybody like studying the Bible? The Bible is a lot more powerful and a lot more transformative and a lot more entertaining than anything I could come up with. So we're just going to study these words here. Exiles. What is an exile? Other translations say pilgrims, strangers, aliens, foreigners, misfits, travelers passing through. You get in the picture, 
right? Exiles. For some of them, it's literally true. They're not living in their homeland anymore. But for all of this audience that Peter writes to, these are beings that are trying to live for Jesus under the pressure of realizing this is not what the world's supposed to be like. This is not our heavenly home. We are not here forever, right? And and let's just be honest. Most non-Christians do see Christians as exiles. They see us as weird, right? I'll be honest, like before I came to Jesus, my friends that were really into Jesus, I thought they were embarrassing. I thought they were weird. I thought they were strange. If if you're not a Christian, most of what we do at church is weird. It's weird to close your eyes and sing a song and lift your hands to a God you can't see. It's weird to, to give money to God? Why does God need my money? That's a weird thing. It's weird if you're in high school, college, whatever, and you're trying to live for Jesus, your friends are going to think it's very weird if, if you decide, hey, you know what, I'm going I'm to keep some parts of myself. I'm going to save sex for marriage. I'm going to be careful in some of these areas. I'm not going to go to this party. I'm not going to partake of this substance, whatever. You are viewed as very weird. It's weird to forgive your enemy. It's weird to be a Christian. Now, the flip side of that How many would say, as a Christian, this world is weird? Like, some of the stuff that happens is just bizarre to me. Like, our world is like tolerance, 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 tolerance. And then when it comes to Christianity, it's like, well, not you. We don't tolerate that because you don't tolerate everybody else. So we have to reject you because you reject people, right? Um, We are more fascinated and and more enthralled by and care more about the potential of life on Mars than we care about human life sometimes. I mean, it's just, we live in a weird world. We live in a world where people are waking up day after day after day, working like dogs, working hard. And the goal of their life is, it's almost Saturday, it's a couple months till vacation, With that next raise, I can get this truck. We can get this bigger house. That's what their whole life is about, is the weekend, the vacation, and some stuff. That's weird, right? Life should have more purpose than that. And so Peter writes to these exiles, and he's like, look, the world's going to think you're weird. You're going to think the world is weird. But listen, uh, you are, while you are just passing through, you're not passing through without purpose. You're sent. You're missionaries. You're supposed to bring into this weird culture. You're supposed to bring the culture of heaven down to earth. You're supposed to make a difference. You're supposed to live lives of love and grace and mercy and generosity and forgiveness so that people outside, not in your bubble, people outside of faith might see that and they might come to know the Jesus that you know. You guys know our mission statement. We're here to reach people with the hope-filled message of Jesus Christ. That's the same message that Peter was pushing on these Christians in exile. He wants to encourage them. Look, you may be a misfit, You may be in exile, but it's not without purpose. It's not without hope, both for today and for the future and eternity. He he would say, look, nobody nobody likes not fitting in. Everybody wants to to fit in. In fact, the person who says, I don't care what anybody thinks, is either a liar or a psychopath, okay? I don't want to be around the person who doesn't care what anybody thinks. I hope you at least care a little bit, right? You got up, put on clothes today because you care what people think, right? And so... Peter would say, listen, you may not fit in on this, in this world right now, but it's not going to last forever. It's not going to last forever. You're passing through. Let's look at that other word, elect. Now, if you uh, don't study theology, you may be bored, you may not care. If you study theology, you're getting nervous right now. 
Because what's he going to say? I don't know if you know, this is maybe the biggest debate of the modern church, is this concept of election, predestination, right? God's sovereignty versus our free will. Most of the modern church is split on this issue. Some people say, oh, yeah, we choose God, and we we can unchoose God. And some people say, God chooses us, and we can't undo that, right? God's sovereignty, our free will. Does God choose us, or do we choose God? Here's my answer, yes. That's my answer. Yes. Pastor uh, Skip Heitzig in Albuquerque, he said this, you can debate election all you want, but I suggest... You instead enjoy it. Enjoy it. Listen, Peter didn't write to these Christians to stir up a theological debate so they could go have coffee and argue theology and form new denominations based on how they interpreted that verse. He didn't write, hey, you're God's elect exiles to divide people. He wrote it to unite people. He wrote to people that were being outcast by their society to remind them that no matter what anybody says, no matter what anybody thinks, no matter how weird people think you are, God picked you you're suffering you're going through it you're being criticized but listen don't forget this God picked you that's a big deal that's a big deal I was um I was at Staley's t-ball practice on Friday I had to miss her first practice we were at a men's conference and so I was at her second practice and I'm expecting her to be an all-star you know and I discovered with my own eyes as the kids took turns running the bases that worst case scenario, she is as fast as her mother, okay? In her current state. <laughs> Eight months pregnant, right? At best, at best, she's as slow as me. And so I'm afraid she's never gonna get picked first for anything. And that's got me thinking, well, you know, she's not gonna be athletic, but I got a, I got a son on the way. And then I'm thinking, you know, what if he's not fast? What if he's not athletic? The, um, I'm a big football guy. The NFL draft is Thursday. So now I'm afraid that my son might also, just like me, follow in my footsteps and be an undrafted free agent. You know, like, like just not, not get picked. Everybody wants to be picked. Everybody wants to be picked. Nobody is standing it on, the, on the playground at recess going, oh, don't pick me, don't pick me, don't pick me. Everybody wants to be picked. Listen. The creator of the universe picked you. We can argue about the semantics, but let's just enjoy it for a second. God picked us. God, like a parent adopting a child, like a guy getting down on one knee, like the bachelor giving the final rose, ladies. Y'all don't watch that no more? Okay. He picked us. Say, how does that work? I don't know. In the Old Testament, Israel's called chosen or elect a dozen plus times. In the New Testament, we see God's elect over and over. You say, when, who picks who? When does it happen? Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, we were picked before the foundation of the world. That sounds like him first. But, but then again, our, our thing, I think our faith cooperates with God picking us. He initiates, but we're not robots. Come on, how many know you responded, you said yes, you, you took a step towards him as he drew you. We cooperate with, with his faith, with his calling us. Our faith cooperates. Some would say, well, 
Does God initiate with everyone? Does he call everyone? Does he only pick some? Is it duck, duck, goose? Does he pick all and some reject him? I don't know. Here's what I know. We love him because he first loved us. If you were in a building and the building caught fire and you're on the fourth floor, is Dustin here this morning? We've got a firefighter in our midst usually most Sundays. Dustin, Dustin shows up, all right? Thank you, Dustin. And uh, I don't know if they do this or not. I, I watch movies and they've got like a trampoline, you know, or like a net at the bottom. And you're on the fourth floor and they set up the net and they're like, jump. And you're like, I don't want to jump. And then you look behind you and you're like, I don't want that either. So you jump, right? And you land and you're safe and you're rescued. What part rescued you? Did the net rescue you? They could have laid a net on the ground. It wasn't gonna do you no good. Did the fireman rescue you? He could have stood down there like this. Did the jump rescue you? You could have jumped to your untimely death. So what part saved you? The fireman, the net, the jump? It's participatory, isn't it? God initiates, he draws, he has the thing worth jumping to. He calls us, he convicts us, but we make the jump. Quite literally, we make the leap of faith. And I don't understand how all of it works, but listen, it works. I don't, I don't get it, like, why did God pick me? Why did I pick him? I don't get it, but I know it works. And so if you're here like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what I should, just give your life to Jesus. Pick him. He's picking you. Pick him. I promise it works. Charles Spurgeon said, it's a good thing he picked me before I was born. He never would have picked me afterwards. <laughs> but he picked us. Peter addresses their experience, our experience as exiles, handpicked, chosen, part of the family of God, living in this strange world. Listen, no matter what you're going through, don't you know God's got you? You know, God's got you. Peter doesn't want them to be insecure. He wants them to be secure and confident. God sees you. He picked you. He changed you. Heaven's waiting for you. Yes, you're a misfit. Yes, there's tension in this world. Yes, you're going to be left out of some stuff. Yes, people are going to make fun of you. But, but listen to me. If you're, if you're taking notes this morning, Pete, real quick, Peter gives us three things that are part of this foundation that we're going to build our life on. Write this down in your journal. God chose me. I've never done a cartwheel in my life, but that makes me want to do one. God chose me. Look at verse 2 again. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God knew, and God chose us. You know, our knowledge is so, is so limited. We learn stuff, we forget stuff. You ever had something you wanted to hide from everybody, so you put it somewhere only you would know? And you hid it from you, Right? <laughs> Or you took a note down, wrote it on your hand, or a post-it, and you're like, I'm going to write these couple of words down. I'll remember exactly what that means when I see it later. And later on, you're like, purple, seven, oatmeal. I don't know what this is. Right? We forget more than we learn. But God is not like us. He sees all, knows all, comprehends comprehends all. He's never forgotten anything. He doesn't get, get the, lose his memory with age. He's never Googled anything. He's never asked Siri not one question. You can't tell him anything he doesn't know. He can't learn anything. You ought to go read Psalm 139 this week. David was blown away by this. He said, God, you know me. 
You see me when I rise and when I fall, when I stand, when I walk around, when I lay down to sleep at night. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it already. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. When I was in my mother's womb, you knew me. You knit me together. He knows. He knows. Write this down. God knows me. God knows me. That might sound scary to some of you, that God knows everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done, my least favorite, everything you've ever thought. But, but listen, he still chose you. He knew you first. He didn't choose you, then get to know you. He chose you after he knew you, and he doesn't regret it. Some of y'all picked teams, and there was a new kid, and he was tall, and you thought, he looks athletic. And you picked him first. And then he got the ball, and you're like, that was a wasted pick. That was a swing and a miss, right? Listen, some of you think that. You think, yeah, God, God saved me, but he's so disappointed with me. He's, he probably regrets picking me. Listen, he knew you, and he chose you. He picked you, and he loves you. And he knows exactly what he is doing with you. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And we see the third truth in the rest of verse two. In his foreknowledge, he chose us. But then sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. I'm so encouraged that not only did God know me, not only did God choose me, but he loves me enough to not let me stay the way that I am. Old me is not today me, and today me is not next year's me. Write this last thing down. God grows me. He grows me. Listen, he didn't, he didn't save you to leave you on your own and leave you like you are. He wants to grow you. Look at the verse. It says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. That's one way we're growing. We're growing in sanctification. God is making us holy. Not perfect, but there's progress that's happening. We're being set apart. We are becoming different. We are becoming more like Jesus than we used to be. Then it says, in obedience to Jesus Christ. We're growing in obedience. You know what it means to grow in obedience? It means to become more obedient. More obedient. Sometimes that comes through uh, reading the Bible. We're like, I didn't even know that was wrong. I'll stop, right? Sometimes it comes through experience. We do something, we make a choice, we sin, we get the consequences, and we're like, I ain't doing that again. Sometimes we become more obedient through counsel. Somebody gives us good advice, it works, and we're like, that's smart. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start doing that. Sometimes the, the Lord leads us to do something, and we're like, I don't know if I should do it. And we go out for it, and we, we take that step, and we trust the Spirit, and we do it, and there's results, and it works, and we're like, oh, that's awesome. I'm going to be quicker to listen next time. We grow in obedience, and the more we obey, the easier it becomes. Now, there's going to be some areas that are going to always be hard for you to obey. But in most of your life, you're growing in obedience. You're growing. Listen, as your pastor, I give you permission to stop growing when you're in a casket. Okay? When you get in a casket, you can stop growing. But until then, God's not done with you. I don't care if you've been saved five minutes or 50 years. You're not done growing. God's not done with you. That verse said, sprinkle you with his blood, which sounds a little creepy if we're honest, but covered in the blood of Christ. God didn't, God didn't shed his son's blood to leave us where we're at. We cost too much. 
We're valuable to him, not because of what we've done, but because of what was paid for us. Moses, in Exodus uh, 24, I think, he threw blood on the people as a sign of this covenant he was making. But Jesus' blood started a new covenant, started a new way to relate to God. You and I are paid for in full already, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, washed white as snow, and then being sanctified by the Spirit. He saves us, he grows us. You see, the whole trinity is in that verse. Foreknowledge of the Father, sanctification of the Spirit, the blood and obedience to Jesus Christ. The whole trinity in one verse. Listen, all of heaven is involved in knowing and choosing and growing you. God wants you to grow and be holy. Nate, join me. I'm never going to shut up. What does it mean to be holy? Perfect? God's perfect in that way. We're not. So what does it mean to grow in holiness? It means we start hating what he hates. We hate sin, and we learn from the scriptures what that is. We love what he loves. That's righteousness, and we find that in the scriptures. We have remorse when we sin. We stop running away from God when we sin, and we start running to him. And as we grow, we put our faith in him. Obedience follows. And so we're growing in sanctification. We're growing in obedience. Look at the last part of verse 2. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So we're growing in grace and peace. This phrase is used over and over in the New Testament, and it's never in the opposite order. It's never peace and grace. It's always grace and peace. And I think that's because of this. I don't think you can have peace until you've experienced grace. I don't think you can have real peace until you've experienced grace. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, Jesus died for us, rose from the dead. We put our faith in that. It's made us right before God. We've been justified. And because of that, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, there ain't a Tempur-Pedic or a sleep number in the world that can give you the kind of rest, the kind of peace that knowing Jesus Christ being sprinkled, covered with his blood can give you. And you know what? There are Christians that don't display much grace and that don't have much peace. It's supposed to be being multiplied in us as God not only chose us but grows us, grace and peace should be multiplying in us. I'm getting more gracious. I'm getting more peace. My my words are being filled with more grace, more peace. I'm becoming a peacemaker. God's multiplying peace and grace in me and through me. So I'd encourage you this morning to trust him. Don't get to the end of your life and go, if I would have known, I would have built with better materials. Build your life on this truth. God knows me better than anyone could ever know me. God chose me despite all the reasons not to. And he's not finished. He wants to grow me. Stand with me if you would. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For questions, prayer requests, and more information, please visit us on the web at blowthirst.com.